the word of the Lord. We're going to be starting in uh, verse 1, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other burst, uh, sorry, beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed uh, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the, the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be our teacher as uh, a congregation, that we would learn how to understand uh, our own souls and the, uh, each other's souls so that we might be uh, a comfort to one another, counselors to one another, teachers to one another. And, uh, and we pray that, um, that you would comfort us and with the comfort with which we've been comforted, we might uh, comfort others. So I pray that you would open uh, your word to us now, that we might behold wonders in your word, and that you would explain it, you would give your spirit, and that your spirit would take these words, these ancient words, and apply them into each one of our lives, into our weeks, into our families, into our relationships. And I pray that you would make us into a church that knows uh, how to love one another, that uh, knows how to extend grace as you have extended grace to us. So be our teacher now. Um, we ask for your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so we are in a second week uh, of a sermon series, which we're calling uh, Soul Care. And uh, the idea of the sermon is, is every August I, I do a, a topical uh, sermon series. We usually just go right through books of the Bible, but in August I, I, I take a little break from that. And uh, we're talking about, you know, as a church... We, you would imagine that this would be an ideal kind of community where we could be like counselors to each other, right? You know, you imagine what, what, do, what do counselors do for us? They, they, they uh, hear the things that are really happening in our lives, and we share things with them that we, we don't share with anyone else. 
and uh, they encourage and they listen and they give counsel and they give wisdom and they point us, you know, if they're a Christian counselor, they point us to the Lord. And you would think uh, we have a whole group of people who, could, uh, who should be able to do that for us. Um, but how do we do that? How do we be counselors? How do we care for each other's souls? And, uh, you know, one of the ways to answer that question is, is to ask, what, you know, what is a biblical worldview of counseling? Um, and, you know, how do you, how do you uh, understand, how do you take something like counseling and say, what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, one of the ways to do it is you look at the story of the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible is a story. It tells us the story of the world. It explains the world to us. And it's a story with four parts to it. The first part is creation, that God created the world and he created it good. This world that God made, he created good. But second, that humanity is in rebellion against God. We have rejected God, and therefore we don't know how to live in God's world anymore. And that's why we hurt one another. That's why we uh, do all kinds of shameful things. All of us have a sin that's in our lives because we're by nature in rebellion against God. So there's creation, there's the fall, but then there's redemption. God sends a Savior, Jesus, to draw humanity back to God and reconcile humanity to God. And then the fourth stage is that eventually God will make all things right in the world. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration, four stages. So what we're doing is we're looking at each of those four stages and say, what do each of those four stages have to teach us about something as practical as counseling for each other? And it turns out there's quite a lot. And this morning, we're looking at the second one, the fall. The story of the fall, this, this ancient story from the book of Genesis. And what does it have to teach us about counseling? And, uh, you know, it's amazing uh, how much is in here. And uh, the reason I think this is important is because, of course, um, as we care for each other's souls, part of the assumption there is that something is broken. You know, why, why do we need counselors? Why, why do we need, you know, why, we all I feel this sense of something isn't working right in our lives by nature. Most of us... Uh, experience that, that there's something wrong with us. And so we have to go to the Bible and look carefully as, well, what's broken? You know, if, uh, if, if things aren't working right, what, what's not working right? What is broken? And so what I want to do is go back to this original text that shows that when sin came into the world, when brokenness came into the world, and what was happening, what were the dynamics there that it will help us understand um, our own souls and the souls of our brothers and sisters here. And um, in doing that, I just want to uh, uh, answer three questions for us this morning. And the first is, what is brokenness? What is brokenness? It's a word that's used a lot, especially in my generation. We use that word a lot. What is it? <laughs> it's an effective word. I hear it and I say, yeah, I think I have that happening in my life. But what is broken? I'm not sure. Okay. Second, um, what does brokenness cause us to do? What is brokenness? What does it cause us to do? And third, how does God deal with the broken? Or how does God deal with our brokenness? Um, so the first question is this. What is brokenness? And um, as I said, you know, our generation uses that word a lot. You know, if, we, if I as a pastor say something like, God deals with me in my brokenness. If you're my age, at least, you say, yeah, that's right. That's that's good. Yeah, I feel that. God deals with me in my brokenness. And, and there's a sense that something's not right, and I feel that in my soul and my heart. But what is it? Now, because on the one hand, we could say that brokenness is pain, right? That I hurt. And there's an aspect of that. But one of the things that we find is that God, the Bible tells us that God actually brings pain into our life. You know, Jesus says that if your life bears fruit, if you're like a fruitful tree, you know what he's going to do to you? He's going to prune you. 
He's going to cut branches out of you so that you bear more fruit. So he's actually going to hurt you. He's going to bring pain into your life. Pain is not necessarily what brokenness is. And actually, um, uh, no matter, you know, if we have varying degrees of brokenness in our life, we're still going to experience pain. And it's important to distinguish that because, you know, if you imagine, you know, if we think of we're giving each other soul care, we're caring for one another, you know, if a doctor, if someone came into a doctor and said that they had something wrong with their body, and, they, and the doctor said, well, let's just think about how we can get rid of the pain, that would not be a good doctor because they're just treating the symptoms. And if they can get rid of the symptoms, you might have something that's d- destroying you from the inside. And if they don't attend to that, they're not helping you. So I don't think it's quite... Now, pain is obviously connected to brokenness, but I don't think that's what it is. Um, and I, I think, of course, the Bible's answer to what's broken about humanity is, is sin. Sin is the problem. And now most, most people, when they hear the word sin, what is sin? They say, well, sin is doing things that God told you not to do, right? It's breaking the rules. And there's an aspect to that. That, that is what sins are, is God's given us a law of how to live. But there's also this question of why do we do the things that God told us not to do? There are sins, but then there's also sin. There's the sin underneath the sin. There's something that's in us that is causing us to be selfish and to, to be bitter and to, to steal and to lust. There's something underneath. There's a sin underneath the sins. And that's what I think we see in this passage is fundamentally what brokenness is, is the sin underneath the sins. And... Um, and um, I think we see in this passage that that brokenness is two things, fundamentally. First of all, it is a distrust of God. Brokenness is a distrust of God. It is a suspicion about God's goodness. We are suspicious that he does not want good things for us. He is selfish. He is hard. He is harsh. He is bitter. Um, he is all these things. Is a sp- suspicion about him, and um, and over this passage, suspicion is all over this passage. So look at verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other, uh, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, "Did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden?" Now the first statement it's not even close to true, right? I mean, there's uh, God. Put, made Adam and Eve our first parents. He put them in this garden. He said, you can eat all the trees of the garden. You can eat whatever you want, but there's one. There's one that I don't want you to eat from. So God is pouring blessing on them. And, and the serpent is actually uh, inflated. He's uh, made God seem more strict than he really is. He says, actually, God's holding you back from all the trees. He doesn't want any good things for you. And you can see that it actually begins to rub off just a tad, just that first statement. Even though it's way overblown, it begins to rub off on the woman just a little bit. Listen to what she says, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God never said you couldn't touch it. That's not in the Bible. He says you can't eat of it. She's taking God's commands and she's, um, she's making it more strict than it really is. And uh, making God a little harsher, a little more strict. There's a, a, even a hint already happening that God is trying to hold us back. And, um, and there's in the air that, um, that God is not generous. God is not open-handed, but he's restrictive. He's, he's constantly putting up fences, things that he doesn't want us to have and to do. And then in verse 4, this is what it says, But the serpent said to the woman, and this is kind of the full-blown attack, You 
will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's a full attack. It's a, what is he saying? God wants to keep you down. God knows if you eat of that tree, you're going to become like him. You're going to flourish. You're going to be wise. You're going to know it. You're going to become like him. And he doesn't want that. He wants to be the only God. And he wants to keep you down in your place. He wants you to be his slave. He, he doesn't want you to flourish. He doesn't want good things in your life. And you should not trust him. The beginning of brokenness is a distrust about God that you need to be careful that you don't let yourself into God's hands. If you let yourself into God's hands, if you trust yourself into his hands, he's going to uh, take advantage of you. He's going to misuse you. He's going to hurt you. He's going to restrict you. You see, you see what's happening? This is the lie. And what we saw last week in the beginning when we looked at uh, what is humanity, what does it mean to truly be human? We looked at hu human life means being formed by God, blessed by God, approved by God, connected to other people by God, and ultimately sent by God. It's a whole life where we live in his hands and he's just dumping his life into our life and we just share it with him. And brokenness is this retreat from that. It's a stepping back and saying, I'm not sure that I can trust that God. I'm not sure I want to be close to him and I'm not sure I want to listen to him. And fundamentally, this is the sin that's underneath the sin. It's an unbelief, a distrust, a suspicion. And when we don't trust, rest in God's sovereign love, his fatherly care for us, what ends up happening is we begin to take control of our own lives. We become protective. We become uh, defensive because I need to protect myself. Not only is God out to get me, there's probably other people out to get me. I need to hold on to my stuff. I need to grab for my stuff. I need to control. I, I, you know, um, I need to guard. I need to defend. All these things, all the things that cause disruption in our relationships in our life come from a fundamental belief that I'm not resting in God's fatherly care for me. And this is what uh, brokenness is. And you know, that's one of the reasons when you come here every, every Sunday, when, we're, uh, you know, when I'm preparing my sermons, the main thing that I want to say to you, the main thing I want to communicate to you is the goodness of God. Because, look, you, yeah, you have all these sins in your life. <laughs> sure you do. And I could say, don't do this, and don't do that, and don't do this, which is good. Actually, that's helpful sometimes, and I do do some of that. But the big message is that underneath all those things that we're struggling with and having problems with is this deeper sin that you don't trust that God is good and that you can give your life to him and you can rest in his fatherly care. And so I need to tell you again, look at God's character. Look what he does. This is what he's like. And when we begin to believe that, our heart changes. And our relationships change. How we interact with people changes. How we throw ourselves into the world changes. All those things change when we begin to believe again, God is good. Everything that we say goodness is, he is all of that. He's a caring father, okay? But this raises a question, okay? So this, that's kind of, that's a big point, all right? Uh, brokenness is a distrust of God. What is brokenness? Brokenness is a distrust of God. But, you know, for most of us, if we're having a serious problem in our life, let's say, you know, our, our we have a marriage that's, that's really having struggles, you know, fighting all the time, or, um, or we have some addiction in our life, or, or severe depression, and if we go to a counselor and we say, listen, I'm having all these problems. I need to talk about it. I don't even know where they're coming from. They're just happening. They just come out of me. I need to figure this out. Generally, the counselor is going to begin to talk to you about your life story and about the, you know, the family you grew up in and how were you treated as a child and what relationships you've had and how have all these things kind of 
got you into this situation where now you don't know how to relate with your spouse and, and you're, you know, you're medicating you know, with a substance or, um, or you're depressed because you know, there's maybe some kind of, of self-hatred going on. And, 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 and so the question is, okay, if, we say, if the Bible says that brokenness is a distrust about God, where does all this fit in about other people wounding us and how that affects our life? How do these two things work together? And um, I think we see it in this passage that brokenness is not only a distrust of God, but it is a trust in lies. We're not just distrust, we're not just leaving the truth, but we're actually grabbing on um, to falsehood and to lies also. And uh, of course, in this passage, you know, who's one of the big characters in this passage is the liar, is the serpent, the deceiver. And what he is doing is he's making an environment that encourages unbelief. He is making an environment that encourages unbelief. And when we grow up in an abusive or a harmful you know, family or environment, we are encouraged to believe that God is not good and can't be trusted. When we grow up in an abusive environment, we are encouraged to believe that God can't be trusted. Let me... Let me explain uh, what that means a little bit from, from my own story. Um, I, I had a, a, a friendship from about second grade to ninth grade, eight years. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's a formative time for a young man. Um, and I was a, a neighbor kid. He lived probably ten houses down from me. I, probably, I spent almost every day with him for about eight years. And uh, he, he was... He, you know, I don't know, you know, probably because he was close to me, it was, you know, it was a pretty controlling relationship. And um, let me just paint a picture for what this looked like for me. You know, I was growing up, I'd go over to his house, and, um, and uh, you know, he wouldn't let me sit on any of his furniture and, because he said I was going to get all of his furniture dirty. And so I'd sit on the floor, and, uh, you know, he was a wrestler. Uh, he was a very good wrestler. He was smaller than I would, and he would try out his wrestling moves on me, you know, slam my face into the floor and it was uh and used kind of wrestling as a way as a way to kind of uh assert his his power over me his control over me and he would constantly say you know you could never have any other friends besides me never had a girlfriend definitely uh no one likes you and and, and a couple times i tried to say hey listen i'm not gonna be i'm not gonna be friends with you anymore we're done with this and uh you know i'd come to school the next day and he'd have 15 kids gathered around me you know laughing at me making fun of me and um Probably one of the most, um, uh, you know, painful experiences, uh, just to give you a, a picture into this relationship, we, we went to a movie together once, and, um, and we were at 7-Eleven, and he wanted me to buy him a beef, some beef jerky or something. I was like, I'm not buying beef jerky for you, all right? And um, we get over to the movie theater, and uh, he's like, you never, you, if I ask you to buy me beef jerky, you do it. I was like, just you know, chill out, man. And he takes me, throws me against the wall. You know, and I'm not a fighter, okay? I'm a lover. I'm not a fighter, all right? <laughs> Listen, I'm like, okay. And, uh, but, you know, he pins me up against the wall. There's families walking by at the movie theater and punches me across the face in front of all these families. I was so ashamed. And I was so ashamed that I, I couldn't figure this out. I couldn't, I, I couldn't get out of this. I couldn't tell him no. I couldn't even tell my parents. I didn't even tell my parents. They didn't even know. I'm going, going on for eight years. And I'd walk home from his house, and I'd stand. There was a cliff right on the way home. And I'd stand at the top, and I'd say, I don't see any way out of this. And so you ask, you know, is that going to affect a 10-year-old boy? Is that, is that going to shape my vision of whether God, uh, God can be trusted and rest my life in his fatherly care? Yeah, it did. And actually, you know, 
the result in my life, I'm 15, smoking pot every day, getting drunk every day, dropping out of school, running away from home, had a big effect on my life. And not just as a youngster, you know, after I became a Christian, I got married. And, it, and uh, you know, early, right when Shannon and I got married, um, we, we were moving to our first apartment, and uh, we were unpacking our wedding gifts, and we are putting them away. And, uh, and she, she said, oh, that, that salad bowl, that salad bowl goes in that, that cupboard over there. And as soon as she said that, something just happened to me. I said, wait a second, I'm stuck in this relationship for the rest of my life. I'm not going anywhere. And she's telling me where to put the salad bowl. <laughs> she's going to control my life. She's trying to, and, and all of a sudden, you know, she's like, what? I'm, I blow up I'm like, don't tell me where to put the salad bowl. And she's like, what just happened? I've never seen any of this. Something changed when we got married. Something did, because it was a threat that now I'm going to be stuck in this controlling relationship again. These two things, of course, that affected me. And, um, but what that environment was, the environment of growing up with the, you know, in this relationship, was an environment of lies about who, about who I am, about my own dignity, and, but also about, uh, about who God is and, the, and whether God can be trusted and whether, what my future is, what God's plans for my future are. Future is, it was a, it, they were lies. And, um, and one of the things that's important, first of all, is we understand uh, the way that people have wounded us, the abuse that we've experienced in our life, is to first understand that, the, the, that one of the things the Bible says over and over again is that God is a judge. He looks at those things and he says they are wrong. They anger him. And it's first of us to know that the God that we're trusting him, we expect that response from him, that he stands up and he fights what's wrong. And we want God to be a judge. He better be a judge. He better be angry about things like that. But also, are the sins that happen in my life, are they that kid's fault? You know, when I'm disgracing my parents, I'm dropping out of school, and I'm, I'm being, are those his fault? Do I say, well, he hurt me? And no, they're not his fault. Those are my decisions. And the relational impacts that it has in my marriage, those are my decisions. I'm not just a victim of that kid that I grew up with. But of course, um, it, it's, it affected me. And how do these two, these two things come together? And this is the answer. is that we are already, by nature, sinners. We already don't believe that God can be trusted. Um, we don't believe he's good. And then when people hurt us, when people abuse us, we see those events as confirmations that God is not good and he doesn't have good things for us. He wants to torture us. He wants to make us bitter. He wants to keep us down. And so we attribute that abuse and say, God, see, I knew God doesn't want good things for me. Look at what happened. And so I, don't, I go on not trusting him. I, I, I trust him even less. Abuse becomes rich soil for my already sinful heart to grow harder. Hear that again. Let me say this carefully. Abuse becomes rich soil for my already sinful heart to grow harder. And uh, I put a quote for you um, from Dan Allender on, on page three of your bulletin, and I'm just going to read the first half of it, where he says essentially the same thing. Ultimately, the enemy is the prowling beast that attempts to devour and destroy the beauty of God's kingdom. The enemy is sin, that fallen, autonomous, striving for life that refuses to bow to God. The enemy is the internal reality that I will not cry out to God in humble, broken dependence. It is the victim's subtle or blatant determination to make life work on her own 
by refusing to acknowledge or let God fulfill her deepest longings. That's what brokenness is. I, want my, I don't trust God. I'm going to take control of my own life. Other people hurt me. Now I'm even confirmed more that I don't trust God, and I'm going to even be more protective. I'm going to be more defensive. And this is what we are. We live in this web of both I am someone who wounds others and I'm someone who's been wounded. And this is what it is living in that web. Now, what is the, the second question? Okay, that's the first thing. What is brokenness? It's a distrust of God, and it is, it is trusting in lies. It's the environment of lies that cultivates unbelief. But second, what does brokenness cause us to do? What does brokenness cause us to do? And um, we see that uh, we see how um, the, the man and the woman in the garden, uh, Adam and Eve, how uh, they, they react after they've, they've disobeyed God, they've sinned against him, they've believed the serpent. And what we see in this passage is that brokenness causes us to do two things. First of all, it causes us to hide. When we have brokenness in our lives, which we all do, it causes us to hide. And you see this in verse 8 here. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the effect of brokenness in our lives, when we feel this God can't be trusted, is we feel a sense of shame in our life. And shame, Allender actually says this, that shame is an experience of the eyes. We experience shame when someone's looking on us. You know, so I, when Shannon and I were first dating, um, actually, I think it was our second date, and we were driving in my you know, piece of junk, Pontiac, white car. You know, it, uh, it didn't have a, uh, the rearview mirror was detached, so I had to hold it up like this, you know, <laughs> in order to look. She, she liked that. She was impressed with that. But uh, on probably our second date, you know, we're driving along, and I go to have a little nose pick like that. And um, right as I'm doing that, she looks over at me, and I'm just like, oh, wow. And, she, and she's staring at me, and I hear it, and then she says, you just picked your nose. <laughs> no, I was scratching or something, right? Uh, you're, but now listen, I can pick my nose all day in my room, and I don't feel a sense of shame about it, but when the eyes, the face turns on it, and she beholds me doing that, that's when we feel that pang of shame, and uh, that's what shame is, is we don't want anyone to look on us. I don't want anyone to behold me, to see me, and so I'm going to stay hidden. And, um, and actually, uh, you see in this passage, when it says that uh, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, you see that? Actually, that Hebrew word for presence, it's the face of the Lord. They were hiding their, themselves from his face. They didn't want him to look on them and to see them and to behold them. And, um, and when, uh, what brokenness, what sin does in our lives is it causes us, I don't want anyone to see me. I don't want anyone close to me. And, you know, some of you here, I know, you probably have huge worlds of your life, both, um, you know, maybe dreams and aspirations that you have, or also, you know, sins and, and shameful things of your life, all of these things, a whole world that no one knows about is totally isolated, is only you, that no one knows about it. And that's exactly what brokenness, what sin, that's exactly what the serpent wants, is you to be isolated and by yourself and to be hidden. And um, this is what uh, brokenness does to us, but we were made for relationships. And one of the biggest tragedies of our brokenness is that we are afraid to experience intimacy with God and with each other. We are afraid of intimacy. We don't want it. In, in some ways, we deeply long for it, and yet we're so afraid of it. We're so afraid of shame. We're so afraid for someone to behold us 
um, that we don't go near them. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, it's kind of a side note that I, I hadn't seen before in this passage, is where do they hide? They hide in the trees of the garden. What's the garden? Well, first of all, it's where Adam, where they work, right? It's their job. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's what God, God put them in this garden to work the ground and, and to keep it, and that was their job. But also the garden was the place of God's blessing. It was, you know, it had all these fruit trees, and I want you to eat, and I want to bless you. But also the garden was actually a temple. Um, you know, all the, if you know the, the tabernacle and the temple later in the Bible were all models after the garden. The garden was the place where God dwelt and where they communed with God. You see that God was walking in, uh, in the cool of the day in the, gar- in the garden. And so it's the place of work, it's the place of God's blessing, and it's their religious life. All of these things in our lives, our work, our pleasures, and even our religious life are all places where we can hide from God. Even our religious life. I mean, I, I know for me... Probably my main place I hide is in books. I love to read. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's my work. You know, I got to prepare sermons. I got to read. Um, I, I get a lot of pleasure out of it. Um, but I also commune with God over books. And yet it can be the place, it's a place where I feel in control. I feel competent. I feel like I know what I'm doing. I feel like I'm smart. And all these things, and yet books can be a place where I can, I can hide from my family. I can find, hide from my marriage. I can even hide from God. I can read the Bible and hide from God. And, uh, and the question for us is, where are we hiding? And all, books are good things. <laughs> They're not bad things. I shouldn't stop reading. All of the places where we hide are good things, and that's why we're deceived by them. The garden was a good place, and yet they were using the garden as a place to hide from God. Where are you hiding from God? Where do you go where you feel control and competence? Now listen, it's not a bad place, I'm sure. It might be a bad place. <laughs> But most of the time, it's not a bad place. It's just when we go there in order to, to, to hide from intimacy. I don't want to be close to God, and I don't want to be close to people. I want to be in control. Okay? So the first thing that brokenness causes us to do is it causes us to hide. But second, it also causes us to blame shift. And uh, you see this in verse 11. 11 is kind of uh, this classic passage here. Uh, and God said, uh, Who told you that we were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. I mean, he is just shameless. He's like, listen, it was your fault, first of all. You gave, her, you gave the woman to me. You made her. I didn't even ask for her. And then she told me to eat it. And, you know, just shifting blame of the sense of shame, I'm going to find faults in someone. And even in God, God is perfect and holy, and he's like, I'm going to find some way that this is your fault and this is wrong. And, that you're, uh, and this is one of the things uh, that shame does, is that shame is so frightening and painful to us. It is so frightening to us that we will do anything to deflect it off ourselves and put it on other people. And if you sense that, that you, ha- you, you experience that in your life where there's little things that will happen and they set you off in ways that you're like, wow, that was disproportional. You know, maybe what someone did to me was wrong, but... My reaction was way out of proportion. It was, it was way overboard. What was going on? It's probably because we feel a deep sense of shame ourselves, and that shame was touched on, was, was pushed on. And we'll do anything to get it off of us. And we'll hurt other people. We'll blame shift. And actually, you know, that may happen here. You may come into a church, and, and maybe a church gives you a sense of shame. 
being in a church. And so then for some reason you step into church and you're like, why are everyone's flaws just, I'm like drawn to them. I'm just looking for them all the time. Why is that always happening? And they just blow up. I feel so critical. I'm not even trying to do it. I just feel this critical spirit. It's because we feel a sense of condemnation from God. And we want to get rid of it. We want to not feel that pain so desperately we will put, put it on other people in a heartbeat. And that this is what brokenness does to us. And so you've got to ask the question, okay, wow, it, it caused me to hide from intimacy from God and other people, what I was made for, and it causes me to just show contempt for other people and, and their flaws become hues in my sight. What am I going to do about this? I'm not, it just happens to me. I mean, the critical spirit just comes out of me. I, I can't even control it. I can't turn it off. I can't stop it. So what's the answer? And I think that the answer is that if the big problem is we distrust God, we need to experience his goodness. You need to experience and encounter the goodness of God. And this is the third question we're going to look at in this passage. How does God respond to brokenness? How does God respond to it? Amazing. This is an amazing passage. Okay? And what we see here is that God responds to our brokenness, our suspicious hearts, by surprising us with his goodness. He becomes surprisingly good. And that's the God of the Bible. He is surprisingly good. He, that's like God's presence in your life will be that he is surprisingly good. He's surprisingly kind. He is a father. He's generous. He's open. He's gracious. He'll overlook sins. This is the thing that's surprising about him. And you see this, verse 8 again. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, I like that little phrase, cool of the day. But um, the word for cool there is, is the Hebrew word ruah which is, is the word for spirit. So actually, what it, you know, some commentators say, actually, what's happening here is not that God's just going for a stroll in the park in the cool of the evening or something like that. I think that element is there, but actually the spirit of the day, the day in the Bible is the day of judgment. You know, the, the spirit, he's coming in the spirit of judgment to, to judge Adam and Eve. And so we should feel this sense of like, wow, God is coming. He knows that they've disobeyed, and he's coming. Uh, he's angry. He's upset, right? That is kind of the, the mood that's being set here. And then what happens? Look at this, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? What? Where are you? You know where they are. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, when I play hide-and-seek with my kids, and, you know, they're all, like, hiding under the bed, talking to each other, and they're breathing loud and stuff. I was like, I know where you, I can hear you. Like, God knows where they are. He knows everything. He knows that they disobeyed, and yet he comes out, and he comes with this statement, where are you? What is he doing? He's beginning a conversation. I want to talk. I want to open up. And what we see in this little conversation is two things. Okay, first of all, that God invites confession. What does God do with our, our, our brokenness? He invites a confession. He says, what are you doing? What did you do? Come and tell me. Tell me your sin. God, uh, he, he's so good, he's surprising. And let me just tell you, what God's showing himself to be with that question is he is the supreme counselor. You know, what is soul care that we're talking about in our church of, like, how do we be counselors? It's asking, it's doing what God did right here. These people are, are distrusting of God. They're suspicious of God. They're blame-shifting. They're hiding. they got all these problems. Where are you? What's happening? And this is a model for us, for us to do for one another, is just to say, where are you? What's happening in your life? Tell me. Talk about it. Confess it. Let, let it out. And um, tell me your sins. Tell me your sorrows. Tell me your shame. 
And, uh, you know, some of you, you know, I, I should just say one thing here. Some of you might say, you know, I don't have a place, I don't have anyone asking me that, where are you? I, there are things I should tell someone, and, and, and of course I want you to know that you can come to me, and I would be happy to talk with you. Daniel would be happy to talk to you. Our elders would love for you to say, there are things I need to talk about that, are, that I'm hiding, that I'm blame-shifting about, that I need come and talk to us. But also, you know, our church has home groups. Is, a, is an important part of our home groups, and they're going to be starting up again in the fall. That's an important place where, you know, this is kind of hard to have some, you know, revealing conversation in a context like this. You need a smaller context where you're more intimate and closer with people. That's why we have home groups, is so we can ask this question, where are you? And say it, and experience God's goodness and his kindness, that he's forgiving, he's gracious. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to judge us. He doesn't want to be angry with us. He wants to draw us to himself. He wants to redeem us. So the first thing God does is he invites confession, but the second thing he does is this, is he promises a savior. He promises a savior. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and uh, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And what's amazing here at the very beginning of the Bible is brokenness comes in the world, and all the brokenness that we experience... Chap, you know, Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning, God's hardly said anything after sin has come into the world, and his first response, I'm going to send a rescuer. I'm going to send someone to save you. Um, I'm going to send a savior. And uh, the whole Bible is about this savior who's coming to heal our brokenness, to rescue us from brokenness, to draw us out of hiding. And, um, and what's amazing is even in this obscure little oracle where it talks about the seed of the woman who's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head, we even see here, look at it, it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It turns out that this savior is also a victim. He's going to be hurt. He's going to be abused. And what we see in Jesus is that he comes and he was abandoned. He was betrayed. He was taken advantage of. He was beaten. He was stripped naked. He was left alone. Our Savior is a victim, is an abused one. And he says to those of us who have, who have experienced profound wounds in our life, I am with you. I know that. I'm, I'm a fellow victim. And I know, I, can, I know how to comfort you. That's, and let me just tell you, no other God in the world can say that. Only the God of the Bible can say, I'm, I, I've been abused with the abused. But that's not it. Because Jesus dies on the cross for who? As a, as a murderer, as a robber. He dies for the abusers. He dies for people who give wounds, who hurt other people. And he says, they come also, both the, both the, uh, the victim and the victimizer, come and find a savior who draws them both to be healed. This is the answer that the Bible gives to our brokenness. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so as we learn to care for each other's souls, uh, the hope in all of that is simply this, that we would give each other Christ, our supreme healer. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you uh, for the truth of your word and um, how, how much it just pierces our lives.